Hello, welcome to series two, episode three of the Leadfellas. This time we are going to examine typos of the atomic kind, round out our review of Gutenberg with an examination of just why his Bible was such an epic work in print history, and closing with a look at the print industry in turmoil, how it can turn bad so quickly. We invite you to settle in and listen to the ramblings and musings of some long-time members of the print industry. Now, onto the croaking tones of the lead fillers, musing on the world of typesetting, past and present. So this time we're going to look at a thing called an atomic or swipo typo. That sounds like something from a B-grade 50s movie plot, doesn't it? I mean, usually typos in the analogue world came down to several distinct causes. The writer or compositor couldn't spell, the compositor would mistype the word, or there was a machine error of some sort that was printed. And I'm thinking of like in a linotype and I'm looking at e E-T-A-O-I-N-S-H-R-D-L-U, for example. And, and Steve, you might want to hey. tell us what that is. Uh, well, it's pronounced Etowin Shudlu, but anyway, yeah, it's the it's the first twelve keys on a linotype keyboard, keyboard like going downwards. So first, the first row downwards is E T A O I N, second row downwards S H R D L U. It's just something that you learn to use if you need to fill out a line for no reason, just to get yeah, so the line can go off to be. Um, sent into the caster it was just yeah it was just um, a way of filling a line full of nothing so they're all mechanical and or human errors so what we're going to say now and if that's not enough the gremlins that it can come in and, and wreck your work the digital age has given us some more the atomic typo is a good example this kind of typo is described as a word that is correctly spelled but not the correct word it's something like a spell check program cannot pick up Often the mistake is a single letter, which is why they are nicknamed atomic typos rather than a, rather like a stray atom, which is very tiny. Words such as unclear and nuclear, untyped states and United States. So they're all correct words, but your spell checker program's not going to pick it up. And I think a lot of people just rely on autocorrect. Now, what, where do we go from um, there? Well, the next thing is a thing called a swipo. So with autocorrect software and swiping on mobile phone keyboards, errors similar to atomic typo are even more common and difficult to find. The software has to guess what word was actually meant. There are whole websites and blog sites devoted to the strange outcomes of autocorrect on mobile phones. Though I would stress these types are not necessarily safe for work. According to Wikipedia, there are other new kinds of typos in the digital age. A thing called type squatting, fat finger trading, and typos in online auctions. Most of these are intentional and largely dubious in nature. I suggest you go to Wikipedia for further examples of type squatting, fat finger trading, and typos in online auctions. But uh, other than that, the evolution of, of a typo from a, a mechanical thing to the digital age to the uh, mobile phone era, just, which is digital too, I suppose. Yeah. Guys, any comments, issues? It will never go away. <laughs> Well, the, the only thing I've got to say is when you first floated the atomic typo as a as a blog, I had no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> but I've been enlightened, and I I totally see it now. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that's, that's very much software driven. Um, 
you got your spell check. As long as the word's correctly spelled, it'll pass the system. But it, ha- it hasn't got that human factor. If someone who goes in and says, "Well, hang on a sec, that's wrong." That's so, yeah. It's, it's t- atomic typo is just it's just the wrong word, it, and it's spelled correctly. Yeah, and that that is the danger of it. Um, spell check doesn't get it. Yep. Uh, until until spell check's got some sort of uh, uh, I don't know I don't know what you call it, but just more clever. <laughs> Well, the other thing with typos is, and I think probably you could pick up on this, Tony, is that when you see operators' work coming in, quite often you you know who it is and what to look out for because people tend to make repetitive typos. It's just in their nature. Oh, very much so. Yeah, yeah totally agree with that. Yep. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah operators, when they've got, yeah. they got some sort of thing with their fingers or in their brain, yeah. they just repeat it over and over. Like, yeah. I do it. I write the word amended. I don't know how many times today, a day in a, right. my world. I, it's, I just can't type it correctly. It's always, <laughs> it always comes out A-M-N-E. A-M-N-E. It's not a proper word that comes out. I have to go back and change it every time. Every time. <laughs> well, at least, you're, at least you're aware, so that's a good thing. What's that? At least you're aware. Oh, yeah, I'm aware because I have to keep doing it. Yeah. I mean, there are. I can't tell you what they are. They are now, but there are words that if you are typing, you know you're gonna you're gonna stuff it up. Like your yeah. fingers just can't cope with the the movement of of because you're touch typing, and there's something about some letter combinations that just <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. I guess because the M and the N are next to each other. Oh look, yeah, but, there, there's oh, yeah. many combinations there. Yeah, actually, it would have been different back in the linotype days because you weren't using a QWERTY keyboard either. No, well, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah. was. It was a different, didn't different fiddle of cash. Yes, <laughs> very nice, very nice. Wow. Yeah. yeah, but even then, you know, the, the the guys, the same guys, made the same mistakes. Hundred percent. So what's the big deal with the Gutenberg Bible? Now, people who've listened to the earlier versions of the podcast will know that we spoke, I'd say not at length, but we have mentioned Mr. Gutenberg, his um, his past controversies behind him and what he had done. But this time we're going to actually look at some of the mechanics behind it. There's a lot of aspects that go into the Gutenberg Bible, which is very easy to dismiss or, or not even notice. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the mechanics of producing the Bible. So here's a series of quotes from various publications that we came across looking at different aspects of the Gutenberg Bible. So this first one is from a book called Printer's Error. And that says, current estimates suggest that around 180 copies of the Gutenberg Bible were printed, a third of which were printed on vellum which is impressive when you consider that there are about 1,300 pages in the Bibles. At four printed pages per folio-sized sheet, one animal yielding between two and four sheets, each (laughs) single copy of a vellum Gutenberg Bible would have required a whopping 170 calves or 300 sheep or 44,000 head of cattle would have to be used to make only 250 Gutenberg Bibles. That's, That's quite a range of livestock. The Gutenberg Bible was printed as a double folio, so it's quite large by today's standards. Well, the Bibles themselves are actually display items within the church. 
Each page measured roughly a foot wide and a foot and a half tall. That <laughs> size wasn't just for decoration, though. Gutenberg Bibles are characteristically large, and they were meant to be used as pulpit books. His Bible is referred as incanabula, and that is to say it was printed before 1501. This comes from the Latin term coined in 1640, meaning in the cradle. It's very much one, it is the earliest book. It's quite large. It chewed an awful lot of materials if you went along with the, the vellum path. And curiously, a, a fact I read the other day was of all the ones Bibles produced, there are 44 known ones in existence today. There's either some that are lost or missing and hidden in barns or some dusty basement somewhere, or they were destroyed during the various wars that they tend to have in Europe. Yeah. Well, that's not a lot of, 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 I mean, you don't call it, I don't know what you call it, vellum. I mean, it's it's a substrate these days, but it was obviously just the skin of, of a calf. Yeah, it is. It is still actually used today, vellum. Um, yeah, I know. I've got, I've got some in my office, I know, but yeah. it's, it's probably not the same thing. It's it's a plastic substrate now. Oh, it's, okay. No, but this is actually definitely made... no animal in it. <laughs> Well, supposedly it, it would out, it'll outlast paper. So, yeah, well, you can't tear it. Like, you can't pick it up and rip it in half. Yeah. Because it, it just it won't be done. It can't tear. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, you can buy a, a packet of 25 sheets of A4 for, I don't know, five or six bucks at, at office works. <laughs> I don't think it's made from... I, I don't think so. No, definitely not. <laughs> no. <laughs> ah. we, we have a thing called it's called never tear it doesn't tear, it's plastic that'd be like yappo or something would it? what's that? I'd say is that like yappo? yes yes, yes. Okay. Yep. So it's very much so but there is thing, I mean there's, there's a oh, a dog is dog called vellum it has the feel of vellum but I'm sure it's been put in there and it's, only made, it's made of paper it, yeah. has, a, it has a texture to it I don't think it's made from cows. No. <laughs> <laughs> at, at the risk of offending someone, you'd have to wonder where vegans would stand on, on books that were printed in vellum. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, these days it could be a byproduct of veal. <laughs> yeah. Made from calves, hey? Well, it is. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, interesting question. Very interesting. But we don't know up. We don't. We don't want to upset anyone. So we'll, no, I don't. That's why I said okay. I don't want to. But well, I'm sure, I'm just, it isn't. They found a better way. We have exactly. found a better. Way. That's right. They did indeed. Yeah. Okay. Now, kill cows for. Yes. Okay, so I'm going to now quote from a, a a blog article that I read from someone called Glenn Fleischman, who wrote an article called "Flong Time No See." And we talk about Flong in another podcast. I did also reference his, his blog site there as well. Right. So this starts off, his truly great innovation around 1450 was perfecting a way to produce consistent pieces of metal type repeatedly and quickly. This so-called yeah. metal type allowed the relatively rapid composition of any arbitrary word. He also figured out the slightly alchemical formulation of lead, antimony and tin they cooled instantly on casting, retained sharpness to keep fine details, and was hard enough for repeated printing. That paired with his invention of the printing press, an adaptation of wine presses, and other screw-driven presses of the day, 
Some earlier printing presses existed used for block making, typically an entire carved page or illustration. Gutenberg had also to adjust existing inks to meet the needs of printing and develop a process of wetting and preparing the typical paper of the day so it would accept ink under pressure from type without smearing. Gutenberg's printing method was largely unchanged until the 1700s, although it was refined for that period. For most of that time, a page was set and printed as follows. Compositor set type, one letter at a time in one or more columns on a page. The type had to be carefully planed and tapped down to become level before the type was wedged securely in place. Type that stood higher than the plane of the page would gouge the paper, receive too strong an impression or break. Type that was too low wouldn't be inked and produce an impression at all. And when it was locked into a form known as a chase, a combination of type, images and chase are a form, and the form is placed into a horizontal bed on a press. It would be inked, paper placed on top, often in, held inside a tympan, with windows cut out for the rectangular areas that would receive ink, and rolled on a carriage under the platen. The platen was a heavy metal plate weighted and adjusted carefully, so that a press operator could, with some effort, pull a lever and drop the platen onto the paper. Type planning, inking, paper thickness, and the press adjustments all had to meet very tight tolerances to produce a well-printed piece. If you look at documents and books printed even as early as Gutenberg's first work, it's remarkable how beautifully they were made, given how much could go wrong. And I, I think that, that's, that's, a, that's a very good summation of, of all the things that need to come together. You've got to, quite apart from getting your vellum, uh, printing materials together, it's getting the whole operation going. So it's getting the press going and, and the type, the, everything cast to type, type height. So you'd have all these... Uh, casts of the individual letters having to be done. So it's a lot of work to get all that right. Going back to one of our earlier podcasts where the um, uh, the Dutch came, they did it, and, and they had cut out wooden letters. I just can't see it flying as compared to something like this. Yeah, wooden letters, wow. Yeah, I, yeah, and that's why they talked about the block press printing. So yeah, yes, it did exist in, in different forms, and block press did the woodcuts and things like that were done. But the scope and, and the limitations of that as compared to something like this are quite amazing. Right, I'm going to quote now from a great book called Type. So his typeface was an imitation of the monastic script, a black letter. The decorations were put in by hand afterwards. In the use of his lettering, it has been argued that he was simply going to every possible length to make his printed Bible as close in appearance to a handwritten one as he could. The most intriguing aspect of Gutenberg's type and the thorniest issue for scholars is the variations between different instances of the same letter. It raises a lot of questions about the typecasting. Although with the crucial development of oil-based printer's ink, Gutenberg's breakthrough brought with it the facility to edit copy, to proof, print a proof, and correct it easily when it, and then print the run. That is one of the crux of the thing, is, is that the type itself, while composing it letter by letter, is also recycled, so you can go back and, and uh, make changes. If you have a, a problem in your text, you can go back and fix it. And I've, I've seen pictures of some of the illuminated texts that the, the monks did in the monasteries, and quite often they did make mistakes and they, they did fudge things and, and change things around, particularly in the illustrations where they would go back and they would change it and you'd have all sorts of weird and wonderful creatures in there because of a, a scribe's slightly shaky hand in this very dim environment that they had to work in. Yeah. So, the, the printing itself tidied all that, that sort of thing up and brought a, a uniform, neat product out. But, uh, one thing about his Bible, 
Like he must like they must have done various reprints. Like I don't think they did all those prints in the one one run. So they must have been storing those pages and just creating more uh, lead type to do the whole thing. Surely you 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 would think so because I mean it's sort of like if you're wandering out and doing this for the first time, you yeah. um, you, you don't know how much to cast. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, how, how but many... I mean, you know, if you if you if you do whatever and and print so many pages, you wouldn't then redistribute the letters back into the typecase to do the next pages because then if you did a reprint you'd have to retypeset like so they must have been creating a hell of a lot of type to be able to do it you know yeah all those letters had to be cast like it's a, keep them coming we need you know we've got so many <laughs> so many yeah. thousand pages to print keep those letters coming sort of thing wow hey, we'll touch on that this next piece here this is a um a piece from a, um, a book called Shady Characters. By far the most potent weapon at hand in the battle against excessive word spacing was the hyphen. Gutenberg was decidedly unafraid to use it, whereas the modern writer or compositor is hamstrung by a multitude of rules controlling where a word may be safely broken. In Gutenberg's yeah. day, the first rule was there are no rules, managing sections with up to eight consecutive hyphens. <laughs> a site, eight. So eight in a row, bang, bang, bang. <laughs> yeah. Heresy. Oh, wow. So, yeah. so, aside from Gutenberg's scattergun use of hyphenation, the physical it's... manner in which his hyphens were printed reveals the care with which the Bible was created. Books today have the hyphen printed inside the right hand margin as part of the main block of text. Gutenberg's double hyphens, however, stand in the margin outside the boundary. And this apparently minor detail provides a clue the single-mindedness with which he pursued perfections in his work. For in order to place his hyphens at the margin, Gutenberg had to add an extra space to the end of each and every non-hyphenated line. And as to satisfy his craving for this one typographic nicety, he had to set an extra 36,000 characters. <laughs> so so that, that follows on with what you were saying earlier, Steve. You know what I mean? Like, oh it, like when, when you were casting it, I mean, who would have thought, well, hang on, I'm going to set up the page and then I'm going to make these extra spaces for all these hyphens that I'm going to be throwing in willy-nilly. Well, not willy-nilly. Yeah. Um, well, certainly not willy-nilly. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, hyphenation, obviously, he invented it. I mean, these days there's all sorts of rules about, you know, hyphenating after vowels or before this or do that, you know. Otherwise, you're an idiot. Back then it was just end of the line, hyphen... <laughs> Don't care what the word is. <laughs> We're breaking it right well, here. Well, I, 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 I will, would imagine like if a scribe was there and, and, and doing like a block of scribing, uh, for want of a better word, it depends on because they'd be writing uniform size letters themselves. Surely they would have to say, yeah, oh, I need a hyphen here. <laughs> Monospace text. The same with the Gutenberg text. Were they all the same width? They have to be. I don't know if he, if he was trying yeah. to emulate the handwritten sort of thing. I, I suppose so. That's I, I mean, a really good question. I, I don't know the answer to that. If he's got a fixed word space at the end to cover any any eventual. Well, to, to cover the hyphens. Hyphens, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, the word space is a hyphen, and that makes you wonder. So he has to justify the line. If he wants justified text with a with a 
a thick or a mid or whatever the whatever he called it at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Keep that margin sweet. Wow. You have to have every letter on the same with character. How do they do that? Mm. I don't know. That's that's the miracle of it. It's just freaking amazing. Really what, what, what I thought was interesting about the Bible too, and they talked about being printed, was that he would leave like the, the, the illuminated bits and come back and do them after. Do them afterwards, yes. Yeah, yeah. They were, so, so he did the black first and then like, it might be like a, a red cap, capital letter or some giant yeah. drop cap thing. Though it always done. Have to come. Yeah, it has to come. Yeah. <laughs> you can imagine trying to work out the alignment the, to, to work all that out. Yeah, well, I mean, looking at that page on the blog, you got you got red and green. Yeah. In the first paragraph, with a with a well, it's not a drop cap; it's a decorative cap. Then you got the decorative letter, and then you got some sort of swish after it, like it's. <laughs> yeah, and then on the second column, you got another drop cap with a, a sort of a, a long swish going after that, like wow. There's five. What's that? Time is on their side. Well, well I guess so. Yeah. Uh, but, but I, I suppose when, you, when you're sort of thinking about the cost of a book back then, because they're all handwritten, so here he is in this, this factory churning all these things out. He stands to make a tidy profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe but, he had like a thousand comps working for him. Well, who knows? <laughs> but they, they did say, <laughs> an, another thing that, that drove all this sort of stuff was that the Black Death that went through Europe, a bit like Corova today or Corona. Yeah. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of scribes fell off their perch, which meant the ability yeah. to produce books became even less. So yeah. coming yeah. along was, was kind of like a uh, right place at the right time. Well, I don't know. Maybe, yeah, I, I don't know. No idea. how. I cannot comprehend how it was done. It was just too... Well, and, and too, I think the other th- thing is everything is starting from scratch. Yeah. There was nothing existing. You couldn't say, oh, I'll nick down the road and get this, that, and the other. You had to make it. It just... That's it. <laughs> a bit like bit, talking about the coronavirus, like the Chinese built a thousand-bed hospital in two weeks. It's but, you know, in Australia, they'd still be bloody flattening the, the, the ground with a, a bulldozer. Yeah, still be and the be on coffee breaks, you know. Like, how do you do that? The <laughs> I just, yeah, there's some things in this world that are just too hard to comprehend. When you review all the technical aspects behind the publication, you really approach it with a new perspective. So, in today's mass consumer and digital market, it's easy to discount the effort of what went before. But ultimately, it's why the trades that put these publications together were true masters of their craft and broke new ground in the process. I certainly think that's true. Absolutely yeah. correct. Uh-huh. And uh, when you see it against the, the numbers and these other podcasts down the track, the, the, the falling numbers of apprenticeships in, in the industry and stuff like that, it's, it's, it's just so dumbed down. And everyone's just willing to accept it. Well, it's, yeah, it is what it is now. It's just, uh, it's just computers. Oh, wow. And then anything's good enough, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it is, and because it's not permanent, it's the books. It's books there for some time, and unless it's burned, anything that, that's on the digital media can be there today, gone tomorrow. That's right. Yeah. Oh dear.
an industry in turmoil, part one, more to come on this later. Just as an introduction, the printing industry over the centuries has continually had to adapt to change and new technologies, each time metamorphosing into something smarter and more robust. Until more recent years, however, nobody could have predicted that its very core, ink on paper, would be subjected to a massive paradigm shift. A world of home computers, inkjet, internet, email, mobile phones and social media was coming fast. So we're going to look, put the microscope on some of the companies that didn't survive the effects of new technology. A contributor has given us some interesting information about Kalamazoo Australia, Sydney operation 2001 to 5, a company that dates back to the early 20th century. This is a personal recollection or perspective. The story's been edited along with references to persons or individuals so as not to offend. No, the story no way refers to the current Kalamazoo operations in, Aust in uh, West Australia. So in 2001, three companies were merged, Kalamazoo Australia, KJR Printing and Easy Forms, complete with all staff and equipment. The new company was trading under the Kalamazoo banner, but there were three gangs of staff, each with their own ideas about production and workflows. Quite a volatile atmosphere, especially given the owners had their own ideas. There was a large team of sales reps at the Rosebury head office. While the production staff were at the main factory in Condor Park and the satellite factory in Sefton, there was a constant stream of work from the sales office couriered to the different production areas. The pre-press department was at the Condor Park office and they had the task of producing all the artwork and printing plates to keep a multitude of machinery running. There were large format flat sheet presses, numerous continuous form presses, folding, binding and cutting machines and the small format, sorry, the small format flat sheet presses were at the Sefton factory. Some of the things that were produced in great numbers were checks, registered club sign-in books, secure sealed pay slips, various security papers and envelopes, tickets, accounting forms and the like. So the first sign of trouble. Between 2002 and 5, check printing began to decline as the FPOS system really started to hit its straps and people had their pay deposited straight into their bank accounts. Club sign-in books were being replaced by electronic driver's licence scanners. Secure payslips declined as electronic payslips became the norm. So within a few short years, a major part of the business was fading. A large percentage of production staff was laid off and some of the older machinery was shut down or sold. There was a bit of a doom and gloom feel after that, but then they moved to a modern purpose-built office and factory warehouse in Granville. And the three existing sites at Rosebury, Condal Park and Sefton were all moved to be under the one roof. Unfortunately, checks and security printing continued to decline. Under the direction of the owners, the company started competing for tenders in different markets with disastrous results. They won a tender with the Roads and Maritime Service to, pr to print maritime maps on synthetic stocks. Problem was that none of their machinery was able to produce a satisfactory result, so it all had to be outsourced. There was also a successful tender for producing con complex hospital forms, 
But to win the tender, the company offered free artwork services. Another disaster because the artwork was generally very complex and time-consuming to produce. 2005, in March, there was a staff update outlining the positive future for the company, diversification into different areas. Kalamazoo Security Pin, Print, which was based in Sri Lanka, Zoo Telecom, which um, was offering prepaid phone cards for overseas travellers, Kalamazoo Logistics, which was packaging, warehouse and distribution services, and something else called KISS, but we don't know what that was. None of this did much to keep the print staff busy. In July the same year, there was another development, an email that there was a new CEO for the Kalamazoo Group who had merged his own companies and was now 50% owner of the business. He would be taking the company to new heights. To quote from an email, a man of passion and vision. Mm, they all are. Yeah. Uh, same year again, September, October, the company was going into voluntary administration. It was only a matter of days later that it was put into the hands of receivers there were many rumours flying around about what had gone wrong, but whatever the truth was, the staff were left with nothing. Superannuation had not been paid for a couple of years. Even people who had been salary sacrificing into super had lost their money. The only compensation was through the government's GEARS program, which is some sort of a refund program. Then in November, there was a two-day auction and the whole business was sold off Everything in the factory, the offices, was gone within two days. The footnote on this is that the Australian arm of Kalamazoo was purchased by a West Australia-based printing company and continues to trade under the Kalamazoo brand in Perth. Wow, what a tale. So, so for me, the takeaway is you diversify or you die. Yeah, well, it looks like they diversify, but... They died anyway, or something else was going on. Who knows? Yeah. Nobody maybe, knows. Maybe they had to ditch other bits and focus on what they did really well. I, 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 don't, I don't know. And I think the thing is, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but the days of like a generalist person who's kind of good at everything, but but not a, you know what I mean, as, as opposed to someone who does something really well. Well, they did. I mean, they were a specialist in security printing, but mm. security printing was bound for the scrap heap, you know, like yeah. not needed. So that's a lot of people lost their jobs and a uh, company with over 100 years history, Gonskis. Yeah. Yeah, well, I remember Kalamazoo. That was just, they had, um, it was like pace slips, those little strips, and, and, and like the, the paymaster right. would fill that out, and, and then we have like a copy on the back, and it was a multi, multi carbon form, and, and yeah, that's it, yeah, multi carbon, yeah, and the same with the club um, signing books, you know, they they were secure in the fact that you sign on when you sign into a club, there was a, there was a carbon sheet underneath it where you signed, and then the copy of it was secure, it was sealed inside underneath the carbon, you know, because it was just a pre, you know, you it wasn't allowed to be people walk in the club and say, "Oh, who's signed in?" and have a look because it was secure. You know, surprisingly, there's still a few about. Like if you if you go out uh, out west to say, well, or I've gone Canada and places like that, they're still they're still there, are they? They're still really? There. Yeah, yeah. 
the visitors and the, the uh, you know, stuff like that books. Yep. And they still had the whole security feature with them. So I was, um, no, that, 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 Gunnar is the only place that I can recall recently that has them still. Yeah, I don't think I've seen one for years. Bloody hell. Yeah. I didn't know they were still around. I thought everyone had the, the scanners now. No, the Serbies Club doesn't have them. So. <laughs> <laughs> must be still a market for, for a few rogue people out there to produce these things. It must be, yeah. I mean, there can't be many places making them. They must, whoever's making them, must have reps traveling the country. Either that, or, the, or perhaps they have a, um, get them from some other country. Might be cheaper, you know. Yeah, the top you know, yeah. done, done elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah, another part of the business gone. Well, and that's another episode. Thank you for making it so far with us. If you liked what you heard, please visit our Facebook site at Leadfellas, all one word, L-E-A-D-F-E-L-L-A-S, where we will be leaving links and copies of the things we covered in this podcast. There is also an active blog site called Leadfellas Blog, all one word, where you can find the links to our podcasts and our YouTube channel as well. We welcome your feedback and comments too. Drop us a line at either our Facebook or blog site. Please join us in upcoming podcasts to hear more from the Leadfellas, and we hope you're enjoying the ride as much as we are. Thank you very much. See you soon. Bye. Thank you.